I learned a long time ago how important it is when women pray. I learned that growing up. My mother, when things used to come up, she would go off into the bathroom because that was the only place you could have any privacy in the house. Three teenage sons and a little girl and she'd go in there and shut the door and pray. Until she was done with her prayers and nobody could bother because the rule in Spain they don't do that. They don't care if people are in the bathroom. They'll knock on the door and have a conversation with the person and everything. But here, you know, that was out of bounds. And so she prayed. My grandmother was a praying woman. And I'm married to a praying woman. And I thank God every day for her. One day you're going to meet her. At least in heaven, if not before. (laughs) And every time I leave to go on a trip, one of the last things she says to me is, I'm praying for you every day. We're going to talk about prayer this morning. From the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, I think I am going to have to stay sitting down because these pulpits are made for people that are Adel's height. (laughs) In Spain, we didn't have one, so we got to build one, and we built it so it's way up here. And Brother Lucas, who's an elder with me there, he's about Adel's height, so he doesn't like to use it. He finds the old, uh, I don't know what you call it, lectern, I guess you call it. He finds that and brings it out and uses it. And I use the big high pulpit. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's start reading at verse 1. The word of the Lord says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Kislew, in the twentieth year, that I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept, And mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now, these are thy servants and thy people, 
whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give thanks for him that we have access to your presence through the blood of Christ shed for us at Calvary because he loved us enough to come down to this world and take our place, he who knew no sin, to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for all of the invitation and the instruction that we have to pray and to come into your presence in his blessed name, to draw near. And we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to draw near through the study of your word. For we believe it is your word. It has proven to be your word. It says to be your word. It is pure. Like silver purified and tried in a fire seven times. Nothing impure in it. We thank you for it. We pray that you would take the liberty that is yours as our Lord and God to touch our hearts and our lives, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to rearrange our lives as you see fit to your own liking, according to your good and perfect and acceptable will. And be glorified in us, we pray. We ask your blessing on each person here today and on the testimony of this church, that you would preserve it and be glorified in it for many days. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The whole book of Nehemiah is a testimony to answered prayer. The whole book. Because chapter 1 starts off with a situation that leads Nehemiah to pray. And if he doesn't pray, if you take this prayer out of chapter 1, the book of Nehemiah is four verses long, or three verses long. Maybe four. Probably end by saying, when I, verse 4, when it came to pass, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. The end. And unfortunately... That's where a lot of people stop when they have trouble and when they get bad news. They become discouraged. They allow themselves to become depressed. They just have a give up attitude. They just say, I can't take it. Sit down and weep and mourn. But those things don't solve problems. Those might be our natural reaction. And as we're going to see in the case of Nehemiah, In his case, in that situation, that was a good reaction. But that reaction in itself won't solve any problems. He had to move on to the next step. And his sorrow and his concern had to be channeled into something that was going to produce, give results or produce a solution to the problem. And that something is called prayer. Prayer. Nehemiah, you know, it was the companion of Ezra. Ezra is a book about the temple. It tells you in chapter 1 of Ezra. uh, Let's see. 
Verse 2, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. So you see that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that the book of Ezra is not about building the city of Jerusalem. It's about building the temple. And you say, well, so what? What's the big deal? It is a big deal. You'll see why in a minute. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, he says in verse 5, And I said unto the king, If it please the king, if thy servant hath found favor in his sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. Nehemiah wants to build the city. Ezra wants to build the temple. Now, it's important to see that, because otherwise the fulfillment of prophecy becomes confused in the minds, as it has, evidently, of many people. In the book of Daniel, we have a a very key section in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, where the Lord tells us about the 70 weeks. Now, I I think you are fairly well taught, in fact, better taught than most churches, and most of you probably know something already about Daniel, 70 weeks. Weeks from the word heptad, which means seven. Seventy sevens. It doesn't mean a week of seven days. It means periods of seven years. Seventy sevens are determined upon your people. In Daniel chapter 9, he says, verse 24, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and reconciliation, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he goes on to talk about the covenant, you know, the tribulation. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, a week, of years is how long? Seven years. And what's half of that? Three and a half. So here it is. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to seek. All these things that Daniel is saying are anchored to that decree. And that decree does not come in the book of Ezra. It is not the decree of Cyrus. Some people, when they begin to explain these things, they get all confused because they get the the point of beginning wrong. The, the decree is a decree and the permission that Nehemiah got to build the city. To build the city here in chapter 2. But he can't get to that point until he goes through everything in chapter 1. And we're going to spend our time in chapter 1 this morning. Very important. What happened to lead up to this? God had already prophesied that he was going to do it. God had a plan. To rebuild the city. God had a plan to rebuild the temple. God had a plan to bring his people back. But what was needed? God was way ahead of them. He wasn't sitting up in the boardroom in heaven trying to figure out what he was going to do. And and saying, well, I'm open to suggestions. He already knew what he was going to do. And you know what happens to us when we pray? 
Somebody said it a long time ago. Prayer is not to be used to convince God to let us do what we want to. Prayer is not to be used to get God to agree with us. Prayer is a process through which we learn to agree with God. We get on the same page with Him and what He wants to do. And you'll see that as we go through this chapter. It's impossible for prayer that pleases God and that moves God to do so unless it is anchored in some way on the Word of God and the promises of God. Somebody said one time, the habit of prayer is good and necessary for Christians, but the spirit of prayer is even better. And I think it was old brother A.P. Uh, Gibbs who used to say, theology is all right, but I prefer neology. Get down on your knees and pray and stop splitting hairs and talking about the theory of how it ought to be and just pray. Forget the theology and get to the neology. And that's what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 1, verses 1 and 2. We're going to see the first ingredient, should we say, in the revival during the times of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month Kislew, in the twentieth year I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of the brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were of the captivity, concerning Jerusalem. Now, what could possibly be of interest to us on the subject of prayer in, this, in these two verses? Look at what it says in verse 1, at the end of the verse. Where is he? He says, I was... He says he's in the palace. I'm in Shushan, he says. The palace. And in verse 11, look down at the end of the verse. What does he say he was? What was his job there? He's the cupbearer. This is a man who's living in luxury. He's not like the refugee Jews who are out living somewhere. Like you see people in Spain and in other countries. You know, they got a piece of canvas or plastic or cardboard and they're down there under a bridge somewhere. They built themselves a little tent. They don't have anything else to live in. And there they are. They're just making it. We call it a chabola. Just a little kind of a hut strung together of odd pieces of trash. And they're trying to escape the rain and the cold. He's not living like that. He's in captivity. But oh, what a captivity for him. He's in the palace. He's in captivity with the king. He's living the best life that could possibly be lived, except maybe if they gave him the throne. How did the cupbearers live? Well, what was the cupbearer's job? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly right. He was the bodyguard in the area of the food. Now, the king had other guards, you know, at the door with... Shields and swords and spears and that sort of thing. But shields and swords and spears don't stop little things from getting in the food that cause more than stomach aches. And so they had the cupbearer. And in the times of Pharaoh in Egypt, when Joseph was in prison in Egypt, they had the butler. The head butler, they call him. But it's the same idea. He's the one who's in control of the food that gets to the king's table. And he's there. When they put the food down for the king, he takes some of it first. He tests it. To show that it's okay. And then the king takes it. Okay, now put yourself in the place of the king. You got a man who's a Jew. He's from a country that you conquered. 
You brought his people here into captivity. He's living here against his will, really, in this country. And he's protecting you from being poisoned? How are you going to treat this fellow? You going to send him out to live under the bridge with the plastic and the cardboard tents out there? How's he going to live? That's why it says, I was in Shushan the palace. He's living in the palace. You can say his room was right down the hall from the king's. Because that's, this is what they did. The cupbearer lived, he had a job where you could say he had all the privileges and the benefits of the palace of the king except being able to sit on the throne. If he did a bad job or if he let the king be taken out, then he lost his job and he's no longer in the palace. He loses all his luxury. He loses his bedroom. He loses all his benefits. He loses his health insurance plan. <laughs> he loses everything. The kings treated the cupbearers in those days with great respect, and they lavished every luxury they had on them so that they would appreciate the job they had and, and for their own interest, if not because of their love for the king, but to keep their job and their position. That's why the king did it. It was a purely selfish thing, but it was very wise what they did. So here he is, right beside the king. And because the cupbearer is right beside the king in this way, these men were very powerful. As it turned out, and they weren't supposed to be in the beginning, but, you know, the dynamics of human relationships are funny things. And as it turned out, he ended up having all kinds of power, you know, because here's a man over here who has a piece of farmland, and he wants to buy the land beside it, and the man doesn't want to sell it. And so he says, he sees the cupbearer and he says, uh, tomorrow, if you get a chance or sometime this week, if you could put in a good word for me with the king to convince this man to sell me this land or whatever it might be. But this man couldn't get in to see the king himself. But if the cupbearer would just say something to him. And the cupbearer is right there beside him. Majesty, uh, there's a man who's a friend of my neighbor who... Or my friend's neighbor who needs help and he's a good man and you just could say a word and no problem. It's not going to turn him down. So as it turns out in practice, the cupbearer not only lived in luxury, but the cupbearer without any official um, authority of government in the kingdom ended up being like the prime minister. They were powerful people. And what's the point? The point is that although this is the job that Nehemiah had, and this is his position, and this is the way he lived, this is why we spent a little time on this, because I want you to have the picture in your mind of what kind of life he's living and what kind of privileges he enjoys. And then when his brethren come from Judah, here in verse 2, These are people that had come there on some official business or who knows for what reason. It doesn't tell us and it's not important. He says, one of my brethren came, he and certain men of Judah. And what happens then? This is the key point here. I asked them about the Jews that had escaped. And he says at the end of the verse, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, when Nehemiah opened his mouth and he asked the question, and as you'll see by his reaction down in verse 4, his question was sincere. 
Sometimes we ask people, how's it going? And we don't have the faintest interest in how's it going for them. It's just what you say. And that's really too bad. But when Nehemiah asked the question and he got the answer, his reaction showed that his question was sincere and that it was a question that came out of the interest of his heart. That although he was in Shushan in the palace, although he was living in great luxury, although he enjoyed privileges that no other Jew around him enjoyed and a lot of other people in Persia didn't enjoy. Although that was the situation, his heart was in Jerusalem. He hadn't forgotten about God's word. He hadn't forgotten about God's promises. Look what he says in verse 8. Remember, I beseech thee, he's talking to the Lord now, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. And he comes down to verse 9, the middle of the verse. He says, Yet will I gather them from hence and bring them to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. God has a place where he has chosen to set his name. And that place is not New York. And it's not Los Angeles, and it's not Madrid, and it's not Buenos Aires, or Rome, or any of these other places. That place is Jerusalem. That's the place that he has chosen to set his name. It's very important to see here that although Nehemiah is in a place where he could have, for all practical purposes, forgotten everything that had to do with Israel, because he's not there, he's not living there, and he can't go there to live. His job is here in the palace. Boy, that's a real tough career. Live in the palace in all luxury and be the cupbearer, sit at the right hand of the king and have influence over all the kingdom. What does he care about what's going on in Jerusalem? That's way back in the past. That's their problem. But he does care. He does care. And when God wants to get something done, you see it in the book of Ezekiel. He says, I sought for a man among them. I sought for a man among them. God is looking for people who are interested in the things of God and not in the things of this world. And when he finds people like that, and you can be one of them this morning, when he finds people like that, he's ready to roll up his sleeves and go to work. God has all the power. He has all the knowledge. He has all ability to do it. But he works through people. He works through people, and he's looking for people. And he found a person here. You see, Nehemiah is is unique in this sense. He's not like a lot of people that live like in our country, in in affluent Western society. We're so taken up with all of our luxuries and all of our commodities. And all of our entertainment, I might as well go ahead and say it. All of our games and sports and movies and everything, we don't have any time for the things of God. God is looking for somebody who's got heart interest and desire to be used by him. Who care about the people of God. And that's what you see here in Nehemiah. Heart interest. Somebody said one time that he doubted that if God ever did anything on this earth after he put man here. Except in answer to prayer. Now, that's not really a point to debate theologically, but you just think about the importance of it. Every time somebody gets saved, somebody somewhere is praying, even if they don't know that person by name. Have you ever done that? Pray for people in a country somewhere that you've never been and never hoped to go and say, 
In all boldness and faith, Lord, save some soul there today, even right now while I'm praying. Convict them of their sin and open their eyes to understand the gospel and to be saved. Don't you think you're going to meet those people when you get to heaven? I do. I'm looking forward to getting hugs from people I don't know when I get there. (laughs) That's heart interest. Heart interest. And this is the first point. This is what I want to ask you this morning. Is this where the interest of your heart is? In the promises of God. The things that God wants to do in his plan and his purposes on this earth. Because when God has a work to do, this is where he starts. With people who are interested in the kind of things that he's interested in. Now, if you're the devil, and I'm not accusing anyone here of being that, so don't get upset. But if you're the devil, what is it you want to do with people? Well, yeah, you want to destroy, but there's a more subtle way to do it. Distraction. Distraction. And even with legitimate things. But you get them so occupied and distracted with things that have no eternal importance and have no impact in any way at all for God here in this life. And then you got them. And then you got them. And since they are, quote, not sinning, they can't feel convicted. And nobody can say anything to them because they're, quote, not doing anything wrong. But as an old brother used to say, the good is many times the enemy of the best. The good is the enemy of the best. They're not doing anything wrong, but they're not doing anything right. They're not doing anything eternal. They're not being used of God. They're not useful to Him, and they're not really interested. They don't spend a lot of time thinking or praying about the things of God. And when Nehemiah opens his mouth here in verse 2 and asks that question, you begin to see here the introduction to what God is going to do. Nehemiah is going to pray a prayer that changes history. And that's what this chapter is about. Prayers that change history. And he's getting ready to do it. And he starts with this question here. In Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2. Paul speaking about Timothy. And this is what he has to say about him. Verse 20. Uh, Verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul had a man that he had taught, that he had discipled, that was serving with him, who had interests like Paul did in the people of God. In the book of Corinthians, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he talks to them about all the things he suffered for Christ. And he says at the end of that, and besides this, the care or the burden of the care of all the churches that is on me daily. Not because he was a bishop or an archbishop, because he wasn't. Those positions didn't exist. He was an apostle of the Lord. And all those churches that he planted, he cared for them. He was concerned about them. He prayed for them. And he says here, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. 
Now these people, when he says all, he's thinking about Christians. He says, I can't just send you any Christian. Because unfortunately, the majority of them are too busy thinking about their own things. They're not seeking the things which are Christ's. Even though the Lord taught us to do that. In Matthew 6, what did the Lord say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And what do we do? We spend all of our time seeking all of these things and hoping that the kingdom of God... Can we really be that dumb? Starting with me. But it happens. It happens. I mean, it's so simple. Well, let's see. What about that? Seek ye first the kingdom of... What part of that did we not understand? Apparently not any of it. But here's a man who's seeking first the kingdom of God. And when Paul spoke about Timothy that way, it's because he had him. But his lament is the same that we have today. Where is the person who's seeking the things that are Jesus Christ and not the things that are simply his own or her own or the things of this world? Where is the person who is not so deadened in their spiritual nerves and their spiritual sensitivity by the things of this world that they can see what God wants to do and they can have interest in what God wants to do? Materialism, comforts, riches, things have a terrible deadening influence on the spiritual condition of the person. They do. It's like Novocaine, taken in small doses, and you don't notice it. You don't notice it, but the next thing you know, you don't feel anything. And maybe some of us have to say in prayer this morning, Lord, give me off the Novocaine. Wake me up, Lord. Give me a heart like Timothy's heart, a heart like Paul's heart, a heart like Nehemiah's heart, a heart like the heart of people who say, Lord, I want what you want. I'm interested in what you want to do in this life. That's the first point, heart interests. Nobody ever prayed a prayer that changed history without a heart interest, first of all. And the second point is a heart reaction in verses 3 and 4. He asked the question, and like they say, don't ask the question if you can't stand the answer. He asked the question, and he got the answer. And they didn't say, well, we're doing all right. It's a little difficult, but we're doing all right. They, they didn't try to smooth over it and paint a rosy picture. They said, well, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The people are bad off. The people have affliction And they're in reproach. They're looked down upon by everybody around them. They have a hard time. They're really having a rough go of it. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. So we can't live in the city of Jerusalem. It doesn't have any wall. When it got broken down by Nebuchadnezzar, it hasn't been built. It's still down. And he says, and the gates are burned with fire. The gates were wood, but they were really heavy wood. But they made sure they burned them all. They built the fire strong enough to burn those gates down. And ruin them so they couldn't be hung back up. So you have no walls, no gates, and a people who are in affliction and reproach. He said, that's the way it is. I don't, I don't remember who that was. I uh, used to say that on the news when I was growing up, in the nightly news, and he used to say, and that's the way it is. Uh, was it him? I don't remember. It's been so long ago. But anyway, and it's like the man said here at the end here, and that's the way it is in Jerusalem. In the month of Kislew in the 20th year. 
That's the way it is. Okay, so there's the answer. And now here comes the reaction. We saw the heart interest on the part of Nehemiah in verses 1 and 2. And now we're going to see the heart reaction of Nehemiah here in verses 3 and 4. And especially verse 4. It came to pass, when I heard these words, he says, I sat down and wept. That was his immediate reaction. I sat down and wept. And then he says, and mourned certain days. Not just that moment. He didn't get up after a few minutes and say, Oh, well, well, back to what I was doing and put all that away. I had myself a good cry and now that's over. Listen, crying doesn't solve anything. The Lord cares about our tears. The Lord gave us the capacity to cry. And when we suffer doing His will, when we suffer in the tough spots in life, the Lord knows about it. And the Lord says in his word that he takes all our tears and he puts them in his bottle. That doesn't mean he has a great big storage vat in heaven of tears. It's a figurative way of saying that he treats them all like treasures, like something like a pendant that he would hang around his neck or carry with him. It's a treasure, it's an heirloom, it's something of special value to him. He cares about our tears. But those tears alone wouldn't do anything. There have been tears that did things. God changed history one time by a tear. You know that? There was a little baby named Moses. He was floating in the river, in the rushes of the river. And the Egyptian princess came and she saw him and she said, it's one of the Hebrews. And the scripture says, and the babe wept. The babe wept. And those tears got to that woman's heart. Oh, poor thing. She was as bad off as Brad. <laughs> Who's addicted to that grandbaby. <laughs> He's going to let me pick on him because we're friends and I have three anyway, so I know what it's like. And they say that the daughter of Pharaoh at that time didn't have any children. And there's the child. And she said, oh, poor baby. And God changed history with a tear. He doesn't need resolutions of the United Nations and all of these kind of things, the European community. I get so bored and aggravated with these kind of things. Men, the kings of the earth come together and they take their counsel, what they're going to do, and they make their decrees. And I say, (sighs) God doesn't need all that. He can change history with a tear. But here he changed it with a prayer. In your history, in your life, in a person's life, in a family's life, in a church's life, in a marriage's life, history can be changed by a prayer. It can't be changed so much by tears. But if the tears lead to prayer, and they did here, I sat down and wept, I mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so what does God want us to do? Stop. Don't keep going. Stop. Think. Digest the information. The situation. Digest it. Think about it. Take time. Don't try to tough it out. Cry if you need to. 
God counts those tears. And not only that, you know, it's a funny thing. Now the therapists and all these people that I have about as much faith in as I have faith that these chairs can hold water. But now it has dawned on their dull brains that things like crying are actually therapeutic. Oh, where do they figure that out? Well, it only took them 20 centuries. He says, I fasted and I prayed. And that's the key. And you come to the end of all those things. Sit down, weep, mourn, fast. But if you take out that last phrase out of that verse, prayed before the God of heaven. He didn't go pray to the Virgin Mary. He didn't go pray to St. Anthony or St. Christopher. He didn't go pray to any of the popes. He didn't go pray to anything else. I pray before the God of heaven. He's the only one who can hear our prayers. Mary doesn't hear any prayers. We had years ago in Spain, we had a a little tract that was called, Why is Mary Crying? And one of the reasons is because, you know, people pray to her and they put their faith in her and she can't hear them and she can't can't hear all those prayers and she can't answer them all. Because she's not God. There are a lot of other things to that, but that's a different story. I prayed before the God of heaven. This is his heart reaction. In the book of Amos, chapter 6, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. You know, when we were growing up in Sunday school, they taught us a song about the book of the Bible. And every time I start turning to the minor prophets, it pops, still, it pops up into my mind. 57, I must have learned that when I was 7, and it still pops up into my mind. <laughs> Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It's just there. There's nothing you can do about it. Amos chapter 6. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass you to Calne and see. And from thence go ye to Hamath the great, and then go down to the Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seat of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock, and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the vial and invent themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Among the many things that Amos has to say to these people is the deadening effects of materialism on them. See, they have nice beds. They have wonderful couches. You know what the couch is? Not just a, like we say, a sofa, but they reclined on these to eat also. This is their dining room furniture. And they eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. And they sing. They have nice music. 
and instruments and they have the wine and bowls and they go down to all the health food stores and the cosmetic stores and they have all the vitamins and the ointments and the creams and this and seaweed juice and who knows what all. You know, they got all the chief ointments. I don't know the name. I think there was one called Body Shop, wasn't there? I don't know how many there are and what all their names are. Boy, they got it all. You have any idea what God must think of people who spend more money on cosmetics than they do on the gospel and missions? I remember years ago, Billy Graham said that God would have to do something with a nation that spent more money on dog food than it did on missions. That stuck in my mind. But this is the key. They are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. There's no heart reaction. They have no uh, insight and no identification with the low condition of the things of the people of God. The things of God. We're living in difficult times. We're living in difficult times. And we need to be affected. We need to allow ourselves to be affected by these things. To, to grieve about these things to the point where it drives us to prayer. For God to do something. Nehemiah prayed before the God of heaven. He was not like those people in Amos 6. He was living in all that luxury, not by his choice, but he was taken by the king and put there. He was living in all that, but he refused to let that deaden him spiritually. His, his feet were in the palace, but his heart was in Jerusalem. See? And the Lord says to us in the New Testament in Matthew 6, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the more you send on up to heaven, the more your heart's in heaven. And the more you bury it all and invest it all in this earth, the more your heart is deadened and earthly. Those are just the facts of life. And Nehemiah is in the, temp- in the palace because they took him and they put him there. And he didn't have any choice. But he's careful to cultivate and to maintain his spiritual condition in his heart. His heart is in Jerusalem. And his mind is in the word of God and the promises of God. He's not absorbed. He's not distracted and turned away from the things of God by everything else that's going on around him. He was living a life that would be a dream for a lot of people. A dream come true. Look at me, I made it to the top, I'm in the palace. He could care less. The first opportunity he had, he was out of there to go live in the ruins of Jerusalem, to suffer reproach and affliction with the people of God, to try to build up that city and that testimony again. And that's the sacrifice he made. So before he comes to the prayer that changes history, there has to be that heart interest. There has to be that understanding of the condition of things and... A heart reaction. And he's driven to prayer. You see it here. And in this prayer in verses 5 to 7. Notice how he prays. The first thing we want to see about it is. His personal identification with the people in their need. Now Nehemiah didn't have any needs. Physically speaking. He was well taken care of. But he prays to the Lord. You notice how he begins to pray. When there's time to pray. The best thing you can do when you pray is occupy yourself with the person that you're speaking to at the beginning. Now, sometimes you don't have time for that. Look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. He says, 
In verse 4, the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He's standing there in front of the king. He's about to open his mouth and answer the king. And he sends up what we call an arrow prayer. Or a flare, you say today. You know. Help, Lord. He's, he's just a quick prayer to the Lord to guide him. He's calling on the Lord. But he is conscious in every moment of his life of his need to communicate with God and to depend upon God. Now, that's what we call an arrow prayer. A, a fast prayer sent up in an emergency situation in the moment. But this is his private prayer here. And generally speaking, prayer is that way. Short in public and long in private. One time, Mr. Moody in his church in Chicago, uh, they were having prayer meeting and somebody came in, a visitor, and wanted to hear Mr. Moody preach. And he came on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. And he sat in the back and he wasn't a believer. And he sat there and this man stood up in the church, one of the men there, and just prayed on and on and on and on. I don't know some of these fellows when they get to praying. And I know that they mean it from all their heart. And I wouldn't for one moment disparage the desires of their heart to pray and communicate with God. But sometimes it just looks like they don't even breathe. I think they must breathe through their ears. They don't even stop. And they just keep going and keep going. And this man got up to leave, this unsaved person. He couldn't understand any of that. And he got up to leave. And at that moment, Dwight L. Moody stood up and said, While our brother is finishing his prayer, may we all turn to him number 87 or whatever number it was and sing. And he cut him off. And they sang to him, and he got up and preached, and the man stayed and listened, and he got saved. Long prayers in private, short prayers in public. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He didn't start off saying, Lord, uh, I need you to make a way for us to build the gates and the wall of Jerusalem. That's what was on his heart. But prayer is not just a place where you go like Lucky's or Safeway or someplace like that and you run in with your shopping list and start taking things off the shelf, putting it into the cart. Boom! The door of heaven opens and in comes running one of us with a big shopping cart, taking things off and we run out. Wait a minute. This is where God dwells. You just walked into his house. You just walked into his dwelling place. Didn't your mother teach you you ought to say Hello? We have to tell that to the children in Spain. You know, somebody walks by and says, Hola. And they just look at him and say, Answer. And somebody speaks to you, you answer. Saluda. Say hello. Don't just walk by people and stare at them as if they were a statue in a museum. <laughs> but this is what we do sometimes in prayer. We're so intent on what we need that we forget who we're talking to. And what Nehemiah is doing here is he's getting himself... Uh, concentrated on who he's talking to. Lord God of heaven. What did the Lord Jesus teach us in Matthew 6? When you pray, say, Lord, I need this, I need that, I need that. We get to that. We're going to get to that. Just hang on. Tranquilo, we say in Spanish. Just hang on. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start off there. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We haven't had anything for us yet. And that's the way to pray. And he starts off this way. Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. And he says, now please listen to my prayer. Verse 6. Please listen to my prayer. 
and he begins to talk about the things that they have done. He says, I pray before thee day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel that we have sinned against you. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he do? He's just there. He was a young man when they were taken into captivity. He's just there in the temple or there in the palace. So he wasn't the one that committed the sins of Manasseh. He wasn't the one that put up the idol images in Jerusalem. He wasn't the one that wanted to kill the prophets or put Jeremiah down in the pit and all of these things. He didn't do any of that. And you know, we can't get anywhere in prayer until we do what the old brethren used to call eat the sin offering. Eat the sin offering. If you don't know about the sin offering, you need to go back to the book of Leviticus. There are five kinds of offerings in the book of Leviticus, and one of them is the sin offering. And they present part of it, and they eat part of it. And to eat the sin offering means to take the sin as your own. And that's what he did. Too many times we use prayer for finger pointing. you know, And we spend too much time accusing people and churches of this and that and criticizing instead of saying, Lord, we, your people. You see, he's part of a corporate body. He's part of the nation of Israel. And if Israel sinned, he sinned. You don't, you don't understand that? You think I might be mistaken on that point? You go back and read in Joshua chapter 7. What happened when Achan sinned? And Israel went out to fight. And they lost the battle. And Joshua got down on his face before the Lord to pray. And he said, Lord, our, our enemies have overcome us. What about all those promises that we were going to... And he said, get up. Israel has sinned. He didn't say Achan has sinned. He said, get up. Israel has sinned. You are not an island. And what you do as a member of the body of Christ, as a member of the people of God, affects all the people of God. And if you don't want to live a holy and committed life for any other reason, you hear me now, you live it out of respect and love for your brothers and sisters and don't drag sin into the congregation. Because what you are is a contribution or a detraction from what the body is. From what the body is. And he says, we sinned. We sinned. He took his place with the people. He confessed the sin as if it were his own. He took it as his own. We dealt corruptly against thee, did not keep the commandments or the statutes. See, he's confessing the sin, personal identification. Intercede. Don't criticize. Intercede. This is what God wants us to do. And in verses 8 to 10, Notice the scriptural base of his prayer. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. And from verse 8 down to verse 10, what he does is he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy what God said to Moses. You know something else about prayer that changes history? It has to be based on the scripture. It has to be based on the scripture. Remember, he says, of course, God does remember. But he's calling to mind the promises of God before God. And it's as if he's saying to God, now, Lord, you said this, do what you said. That is the strongest ground for prayer. When you can say to God, do what you have said. This is what your word says. And you can quote the scripture back to him in prayer and say, I'm putting my faith on your word, Lord. You said this. I'm waiting for you to do what you said. See, what does the devil do? You get your mind so full of PlayStation 
and Nintendo and the cooking programs and the movies and all these activities that we have. We spend all of our time running here and running there and doing this and we got all the kids involved in all the clubs and all the social activities and everything and we don't have any time and we don't know the Word of God. And so when we come to pray, our prayers are empty. You know what? Because God loves us, sometimes he just has mercy on us in our emptiness and ignorance. And he helps us because he wants to help us and he wants to bless us. But you can never be a powerful Christian in your prayer if you don't know the word of God. And have faith in what God has said. Do what you have said. Remember, Lord, what you commanded your servant Moses. And he quotes it to him. That's the basis for his prayer. Scriptural basis. Instead of working on your backhand or your needlepoint, it's okay if you want to do needlepoint to relax, but I'll tell you what, there's something else you better work on. You better work on the scriptures, Bible study. I love what you do here on Sundays. You have the Bible memorization. I think that's great. It's very important. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The scriptural basis. All prayers that change history are based on faith in God. And this is what the scripture does to us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God acts in response to faith. But faith is not hoping for something or dreaming about something. Faith is unbreakable confidence in God and his word, what he has said. When Elijah got up on that mountain and he said, Tell Ahab to go to the go to his palace because there's a sound of abundance of rain. Why did he say that in First Kings 18? Go back to the beginning of the chapter. In the first verse of chapter 18, God said to Elijah, "I will send rain." Faith is based on what God has said, on a word from God. It needs a word from God, and it finds it. So Elijah went up on that mountain. Elijah confronted the king and all the false prophets on the Mount Carmel in Israel. But he did all of that based on what God told him in the first verse of the chapter. He was a man strong in faith because he knew that what God had said, God would do. He got up there and he, after it was all over the confrontation, he got down on his face before the Lord and he prayed. And then he sent his servant. He said, go look and see if there's any clouds. And the servant came back and he said, there's nothing. Go look in the bank account. There's nothing. Go look at the telephone. See if the person I need to talk to sent me a message. There's nothing. There's nothing. And he sent him seven times. Every time he came back. There's nothing. There's nothing. Elijah said, go again. Go again. He wasn't rolling the dice. In verse 1, God had said he was going to send rain. He was basing his perseverance on the promise of God. God has to do it because he said it. And so he went. And that seventh time he said, well, there's a small cloud about the size of man's hand. He said, get up and start running. Here it comes. Scriptural basis. And finally, perseverance. Pray till the answer comes, just like Elijah did. Pray till the answer comes. Look. In chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the month Kislyu. That corresponds more or less to our month December. 
Now go over to chapter 2 and verse 1. It came to pass in the month Nisan. That's not the car. (laughs) That corresponds to the month April. Hmm? Four months later. Nehemiah prayed four months before he got to chapter 2. What's the moral of this? What's the lesson we learn? Don't be like little kids who play pranks on people at home. They ring the doorbell. Ding, dong, they run away and hide. And the lady comes to the door. Yes, yes. Looks around. There's nobody there. And they're all hiding in the shrubbery across the street. <laughs> they just think that's tremendously funny, you know. Nobody at the door. Call them up on the phone. Is your refrigerator running? Yes. You better go catch it. Ha, ha, ha. Pete, we do this when we pray. We're like little kids. We pray. Oh, Lord, and we're wringing our hands, and then ten minutes later we've forgotten and we don't pray about it anymore. We're like little kids. We pray, we ring the doorbell, and we don't persist. We run away before we get the answer. If God has spoken and you have the promise of God's word, stick to your prayers. God knows what he's doing, and God's answers never come late. They never come late. Nothing is outside of the reach of prayer, except the things that are outside of the will of God. I know a man in Belize who's an elder in an assembly there now. His mother prayed for him for 17 years to get saved. 17 years that woman prayed every day of her life. Now suppose she prayed 14 years and quit. I don't like to think about things like that. She prayed every day until he got saved. You got to be like the cat on the screen door. I don't think you have screen doors here anymore. In the south where I grew up, we had porches and screen doors. And the animals want to get in the house sometimes, you know. The cat would jump up there with his claws and hang on the screen door. And they want to get in. You have to be like that on the door of heaven. You got to be like the cat on the screen door. Oh, Lord, hang in there until he sends you the answer. Prayer can change history. And not just Nehemiah's prayer, your prayer. Your prayer. I hope the Lord will use this to encourage you and to challenge you to pray because God can do in prayer more things, in answer to our prayers, more things than we can think of to ask Him. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. So there's the challenge. Any takers? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for the opportunity we've had to be together and to look just a little bit into Nehemiah and to see how you use this man and his prayer to change history for the nation of Israel. He was the right man at the right time. And we thank you, Lord, that you can use us. And we pray that you would. We pray that you would help us to keep our hearts and minds close to you in the Scriptures that you would give us a heart for the things of God and for the people of God and for what God is doing on this earth and not let us be distracted by the things of the world around us. We know that you want us to live in the world and be a testimony, but you don't want us to be of the world and that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Help us, Lord, to live here as your people and to remember your plans and purposes. Help us to take every problem to you in prayer and to trust in you and to call upon you and to wait to see the answer. And may you be glorified in our lives. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.